0: Okay, this is chapter ten on divorce. There is that right? Okay. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea, and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife?" What did Jesus command you? Uh, he replied. They said, Jesus permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. When they were in the, in the house again, the Jesus asked the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, "Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery." Thanks, Bob.
1: Some of you might be wondering, <clears throat> why on earth are we covering this passage? And the reason is that, um, if you remember last year, we, we started on the Gospel of Mark, and we worked our way through to just over halfway, and then we cut to Advent, and then we've just finished a five-week series on prayer, and I hope you're really blessed by that. I hope um, you've been inspired to enter into the life of God uh, more deeply than you ever Have been in the past, Um, yeah. In the the men and women's groups, uh, every week on week off, we're covering uh, John Mark Comer's four-week series on prayer. So you're welcome to attend that if you're keen. Uh, It's just a wonderful way of engaging uh, and a new way in prayer. So today we're returning to the Gospel of Mark, and when I saw that I was getting to preach on divorce, I was like, "Oh, great! Thanks, Sarah." Sarah's in charge of organising the, the preaching schedule, but I've got a man up and take it on. Um, so, if you recall, uh, some scholars believe that the source of Mark's gospel is actually Peter, the Apostle Peter, and this might explain why it's so brief and hurried. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, there's lots of immediatelys and straightaways, and um, it's like just it's like a whistle stop tour through the gospel. And uh, as we uh, saw in the first half of the Gospel, Mark is telling story after story that answers the question, who is Jesus? Jesus drives out demons without calling on a higher power. He calms storms. He heals people. He forgives sin. He raises the dead. He feeds thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He walks on water. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is the messianic title from the book of Daniel. And all of these things are things that only God can do. And Mark leaves us in no doubt that the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is that he's God. And that's why the pinnacle or the turning point of the gospel is in chapter 8 where Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah. And then there's this incredible change of tone and where Jesus was doing miracle after miracle, I think, there's only two more miracles in the second half of the book. Uh, There's a a change of tone and Jesus starts telling the disciples that he's actually going to die. And for a Jewish expectation of the Messiah, that's completely like, no, not even in the same universe. That's not what the Messiah does. Messiah isn't isn't going to die. He's going to rescue us from these Romans. That's what he's going to do. And uh, so quite... Uh, out of left field, Jesus starts telling the disciples that he's going to die. And the rest of the gospel is dominated by this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is right up north um, at uh, chapter 8, and then he goes uh, to Jerusalem. And, of course, the cross. So that's the context of today's passage from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus teaches about divorce. And at first reading, seems pretty hard, doesn't it? Jesus says in verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And, uh, you know, it's quite, it's really black and white in this particular scripture. And, and so it would be easy to conclude that um, Jesus forbids anyone who has been divorced to remarry, no exceptions. But this is when we need to understand the importance of knowing you. Knowing your Bible and doing your research about the context. It's dangerous to take a couple of passages out of Scripture and just say that's it without allowing the other scripture to interpret it. So today we are going to see that God does hate divorce, yes, primarily because he designed marriage to be a parable of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Right? It's a parable that points to Jesus' relationship with the church but also because healthy marriages are crucial to human flourishing. And yet we're also going to take note of how Jesus treated two women who had committed adultery, who had divorced. And we're going to see that Jesus did not treat them harshly because of what they had done, right? So we're going to look at how Jesus treated divorced people. Instead, he desired a relationship with them and he went out of his way to win their hearts to himself. And finally, we're going to see that God hates all sin, not just adultery. And we are all in need of his forgiveness and grace. And if we come at Jesus with the law, we will receive the law. But if we come to Jesus in humility, with sorrow and repentance for our sin, then we will receive grace upon grace, because his primary purpose is for us to be in relationship with him. And as we saw in the prayer series, an invitation to join the life of God. So... Mark chapter 10, what's happening here? Jesus has moved a lot closer to Jerusalem and he's teaching a crowd of people. And some Pharisees come at him and test him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So here are a couple of very important points about the context. Number one, he's talking to Pharisees about the law of Moses. And two, they are testing him or interrogating him. Some translations say they demanded of him, and other translations say they see this to trap him. What's the trap? What's going on here? What's what's the story behind the story that we read? So, big picture. Jesus has been in conflict with the Pharisees for some time. And the Pharisees are looking for ways to get rid of Jesus because he's a very problematic character for them. Where is Jesus in the context of the story? So he's moved a lot closer to Jerusalem. He's in the region of Judea and across the Jordan. What happened in this region previously? What happened in the Jordan River? Anyone know? John the Baptist. Yes, he was baptizing people. What happened to John the Baptist? Got his head whopped off. That's right. And why did he get his head cut off? Because he he criticized King Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. So do you see the trap now? If they can get Jesus to criticise King Herod, maybe King Herod's wife will whop Jesus' head off too, and then problem solved. So, is Jesus aware of this trap? Of course he is. He can see it a mile off, and that's why he points the Pharisees back to the law of Moses. What did Moses command you? He points the Pharisees back to their own law, and in doing so, he effortlessly escapes from the trap so i think this is also a principle here for us to be aware of the pharisees came at jesus with the law and what do they get the law this is an important point if if we come at jesus with the law we'll get the law too what do i mean Uh, many of you are familiar with my story of a 25 year long period of singleness and loneliness which began with me demanding of God that he give me a wife because I had been a good boy. Gone to church, served in ministries, I was on vestry, hadn't slept around, kept myself pure, all this kind of stuff. And in that demanding, I was basically coming at Jesus with the law. And what do you think I got in return? I got the law. Matthew five twenty-eight. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I might not have physically committed adultery with anyone, but Jesus shifted the standard. So, you got that? Okay, we'll try this. By this definition, I had committed adultery many times. In fact, I'd be, uh, I'd be quite uh, happy to say <clears throat> that there would be very few people, if anyone who hadn't committed adultery by this standard. Would that be fair enough? I won't ask you to put up hands. (coughs) So what I learned was that if I try to prove myself righteous under the law, God will resist me and will prove to me and everyone else around me that I'm not. And as a result, my struggles massively increased. And I could no longer say that I had been a good boy. I mean, I I didn't physically sleep around, but my struggles were... Uh, more and more pronounced so what about you take a moment to reflect on your own life have you ever complained to god and claimed that he is unjust and you're in the right have you tried to stand in judgment of god through your own self-righteousness like i did if so what was the result what happened to you Did you feel God closer to you or far away? If you're anything like me, God became more and more distant and I got more and more caught up in my own sin. Now, just a moment, uh, just a point of clarification. I'm not talking here about lament. As part of our prayer series, we looked at lament and lament is different from complaint. Lament before God is good and right and it's about expressing our grief and pain and sorrow to God and asking Him to act on our behalf. It's not about saying that we are righteous and God is unfair. So N.T. Wright says this, Lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in His character, whereas complaint is an accusation against God that maligns His character. Right? They're quite different things. So by all means lament, That's it's... it's I looked up and about more than 40% of the Psalms are actually lament Psalms. And I think we need more lament songs in church um, so that people who are going through real difficult times have an outlet to express their sorrow and grief. But <clears throat> what God doesn't like is complaint. Basically, he's questioning God's character uh, through our own uh, judgment. And that's exactly what I was doing. So, my advice based on my own experience is not to come to God with the law and complain that he is unjust, doesn't work out good. You give the law, you'll get the law, but if you give humility, you will receive grace. Grace is by far the better way, and we'll look at that shortly. So, back to Mark 10. The Pharisees, who were experts in the law of Moses, rightly replied to Jesus' question that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So what's this about? So Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and it goes on and on. Now notice Jesus' question was, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees' response was, Moses permitted There's a big difference between a command and a permitted activity, isn't it? So it turns out there's two dominant schools of thought around this issue at the time, and they were the houses of Hillel and Shammai. The house of Shammai held that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression. But the house of Hillel allowed divorce even for trivial offenses such as burning a meal. Now Sarah is a very good cook, and to the best of my memory, which is admittedly not very good, She has never burnt a meal. But I did notice that the truck has got a bad scratch on one of the bumpers. So it's just as well that I am not a member of the house of Hillel. So, in addition (laughs) to this trap, some believe the Pharisees also wanted Jesus to take sides. Who's got it right? But when you look at his response, he basically says, neither of you are right. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus isn't saying that Moses was wrong in his permission uh, that he gave in Deuteronomy. But he insists that if we want to know what God commanded, we need to go back to Genesis. And in Genesis, we understand that God's intention for marriage is for life. In fact, the bond, uh, this is what N.T. Wright says, the bond of husband and wife creates not merely a partnership or a working agreement, but a new entity, a new human being, one flesh. Like, you can separate one flesh, but it's painful, and there's lots of blood and it's pretty ugly, and then you're maimed for life. That's, right. But that's how God sees husband and wife in marriage, one flesh. And Paul takes his one oneness to a new level in Ephesians. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul is saying that Christian marriage is to act like a sort of living parable of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Can you imagine Jesus divorcing the church? After what he went through? After the cross, all the suffering, the pain, the descending into hell? No, no, not in your life. In fact, that's what our great security as Christians, isn't it? Jesus will never send us away. He'll never write us a certificate of divorce for burning the dinner. Right? Most of us have done a lot worse than burning the dinner. So, if you're married, how's your marriage doing? As a living parable of how Jesus loves his bride, the church. If you're single, how does this idea affect the way you view marriage? But Jesus also knows that we have a big problem. In verse 5 he says that Moses gave us this concession because your hearts were hard. In other words, the Israel and Moses day was not able to fulfill the Creator's intention. They were to be a kingdom of priests, the holy nation, remember that in Exodus? And they couldn't do it. They, They were unable to do it. And so they needed laws which would reflect a second best reality. And divorce is absolutely a second best reality. Now the word for hard-heartedness in Greek is based on two words. The second is kardia, (coughs) the word for heart. And the first is from the Greek word skleros, describing people who won't budge or bend or submit and who are unyieldingly harsh. But hard-heartedness is not just Israel's problem, is it? That's our problem too. And for Jesus' comments to make any sense, he must be offering a cure for hard-heartedness. If he is insisting on a rigorous return to the standard of Genesis and to treat marriage as a new single form of husband and wife that acts as a living parable for his own love for the church, he is either being hopelessly idealistic or he believes that the coming of his kingdom will bring about a way for hearts to be softened. Now, the fact that <clears throat> divorce has been a huge issue in the, throughout the history of the church, and the failure rate of committed Christian marriages is about thirty percent. It's not fifty percent. Um, I came across some, uh, an article that said that wasn't isn't correct. In fact, it's way more nuanced than that. <clears throat> um, for those who who are active in their church, uh, in other words, they take their faith seriously, the divorce rate is 27 to 50% lower than for non-churchgoers. That's interesting, eh? 27 to 50% lower than for non-churchgoers. Whereas for nominal Christians, yeah, this is quite interesting, but those nominal Christians who simply call themselves Christians, but do not actively engage with the faith, Um, they are actually 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. Interesting, eh? I've got a a reference for you if anyone's interested in looking at that article. So this is evidence that committed Christians who actively seek God's help to remain faithful to their marriage vows do receive soft-heartedness and uh, they rely on God to... uh, Make a way for them through the difficult times in marriage. So rather than look for ways out of marriage through certificates and and the like, we should be seeking God and asking him for the gift of soft-heartedness. And I think this is something we can all do, right? Not just for helping our marriages. So it would appear (coughs) um, to be God's prescription for married couples who are experiencing challenges to seek his help. He will make a way through but what about those who have divorced? So with this backdrop, we, we might expect Jesus really, let's face it, it's, it's quite hard teaching on divorce, um, would treat anyone who committed adultery pretty, pretty harshly, right? Um, I mean, the, the penalty for the adultery in the law of Moses was stoning to get to death, despite um, the fact that this type of uh, prosecution is pretty scant in the Bible. They were supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, actually, let's go on to that because uh, Jesus' treat- treatment of uh, those who have committed adultery is quite uh, tender. And there are two famous stories to consider. <clears throat> the first is from John chapter 8, where the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus and demanded that he judged her. So, first of all, where's the dude? Some people say that he's probably a Pharisee himself, one of their mates. So you can stay here, mate, but we'll take the girl. So that's pretty obscene. Um, instead, uh, so so that so they got this woman, brought her before Jesus, and demanded that he execute the law of Moses. And instead, you remember, Jesus answered the famous words: "Let anyone who is Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then the older guys left first. (laughs) And then the young guys are like, what? What's going on? And then the, the penny finally dropped and they all left. And then he said, neither then do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't that amazing? The second is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well from John 4. And remember this, he he went out of his way. He went miles out of his way to talk to this woman. And he was at the well, and he he asked this woman for a drink, which was a complete no-no, because Jewish men never asked Samaritans for anything, let alone a Samaritan woman. And Jesus asked this woman for a drink. And then as part of the conversation, Jesus told her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, And the man you uh, now have is not your husband. (laughs) What you have said is quite true. So, in both cases, Jesus did not demand the enforcement of the law of Moses. And it's quite interesting to note that obviously the Samaritan woman hadn't been subject to the law of Moses because she had been married five times. She should have been stoned to death five times over if that was the case, right? So it seems like like that particular uh, sentence was not often carried out, even in those days. <clears throat> so, Jesus treated each of these women with great tenderness and love. But did you notice how the woman responded to Jesus? Did they say, Oh, no, 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 it was, it was that guy, it was his fault. He led me astray, it's not my fault. They they didn't try and hide their sin. They didn't deny it or give excuses. They were courageous and honest with Jesus. And how did he respond? He responded with grace. So this is the other side of the coin, at coming to Jesus with the law. If you come to Jesus with the law, you'll get the law. But if you come with humility and awareness of your own sin and sorrow, we will receive forgiveness and grace. And often I see in myself and in others the tendency to deny what we've done and try and shift the blame, make excuses for ourselves. And if you catch yourself doing this, remember Jesus' response to these women compared with how he treated the Pharisees. Let's own our sin and failures and embrace the humility that they bring because if we do this, we will receive grace and mercy from the Lord. And when you're apologising, just, just as an aside, just say, I'm sorry. Don't, say, don't go on and say, yeah, well, I was feeling tired, and, and, and you, you actually burnt my dinner, but, you know, no, just, just say, I'm sorry. It doesn't need anything more. It spoils it when we try and tack bits on that kind of explain and try and excuse. Just say, I'm sorry. I was out of order. But all this begs a question, how are we to reconcile what Jesus said in Mark 10 with how Jesus treated the woman of John 4 and 8? If Jesus affirmed that divorce is not an option for a married couple, why did he treat this woman with such grace? Like You'd, you'd expect something, wouldn't you? So this brings up the purpose of the law. <clears throat> why did God give us the law? God gave us the law for two reasons. The first and lesser reason for the law was to provide a framework for the nation of Israel to prosper and to thrive. God wants his children, his people, his humanity to thrive. Healthy marriages equal healthy families. Healthy families lead to healthy societies and healthy societies lead to human flourishment. This is what God intended. And this is backed up by the stats on the importance of stable marriages to the well-being of children. And I found this quote Reams of social science and medical research convincingly show that children who are raised by their married biological parents enjoy better physical, cognitive and emotional outcomes on average than children who are raised in other circumstances. So that's the first reason why God gave us the law on divorce. Divorce is bad for society. And, and let's face it, we're seeing it now, aren't we? As we, as we say, no, no, we know better than God. We're seeing these, the, um, the effects of divorce and its, uh, its implications for children um, become more and more apparent. But there's a theological reason, which is, I think, a greater reason and that we've already touched on. And Paul writes in Romans, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So in other words, the law was designed to To defeat our terrible tendency to self-righteousness. And, you know, we've just talked about when you're you're saying sorry, when you're apologising, sometimes it's very difficult not to try and, you know, but it wasn't, you know, there's a good reason. You know, there's this tendency for us to want to say, yeah, but I'm a good person. Right? That's a terrible tendency to self-righteousness. So, the law was given as a deterrent against our desire to prove ourselves worthy of God's love and respect through our own performance, apart from relationship with God. So, let's face it the law requires us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Does anyone know anyone who's been able to keep this command? Not me. So the second and greatest reason that the law was given was that it acts like a shepherd that drives us to our knees before God in humility, and we need that humility in order to be able to enter into relationship with God. So both of these women, the Samaritan woman and the woman who was caught in adultery, were brought back into relationship with Jesus despite the fact that they committed adultery because... God forgave them. He showed them grace and mercy. And they didn't try and justify what they'd done. They had humility. Right? And God doesn't treat adultery different from any other sin. Any sin can be forgiven when acknowledged and repented of just like any other sin. But what if I have divorced? Can I remarry? So in, in Mark's Gospel... There seems to be no exception. And that passage that we just read, just no exceptions. But in the rest of Scripture, we do see two exceptions. And the first is in Matthew five thirty-two. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, if a husband or wife sins sexually, then the offended spouse has the right to divorce and remarriage, Um, although that conclusion is hotly debated by a minority of, um, of people. The second concession is the case of a marriage where one of the spouses is an unbeliever. This is from 1 Corinthians 7. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So, if you're married to an unbeliever, you need to stay. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then... Paul says that the believer can remarry because they're not bound in such circumstances. So according to Scripture, and this is, I'm just presenting what Scripture says here as best I can, these are the only exceptions when remarriage after divorce can occur in a church. So let's land this now. In today's world, some would say that Jesus' words in Mark 10 to 12 are cruel, unfeeling, Unforgiving, exclusive and a whole bunch of other nasty things. On top of that, many people, including some of you, have been badly bruised by the whole experience of divorce. But as a result of our study today, I hope you can remember and reflect on the following ideas. Number one, Jesus affirms that God's law about divorce are not only for the flourishing of humanity. They are an indication of the depth of Jesus' love for the church. And therefore, Christian marriages are to be like a living parable of this far greater reality. Number two, Jesus did not treat those who had divorced with judgment and condemnation. Instead, he treated them with incredible love and tenderness and grace. Because above all else, he desired relationship with them. The law was designed to bring people back into relationship with him. Right? And that's the same for us. Number three, adultery can be forgiven just like any other sin. What is required is an owning of the sin and humility and repentance before God. And lastly, if you're grappling with disappointment with God, and like I, like I said, I've battled with 25 years of <laughs> disappointment with God, <clears throat> by all means lament, but don't complain. Remember, if you come at Jesus with the law and try to claim that he is unjust and unfair, you will receive the law yourself. And in my experience, it won't be pleasant. But there's a far better way, and that's to come to Jesus with humility and awareness of our own sin. And if we do that, we will receive grace upon grace. So, that was a pretty tough passage to speak on. But I hope you found something of value there that's ministered to you.